Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. Before we begin the show, we want to share a podcast with you that we're loving right now and that we know you're going to love too. It's called Future Hindsight, and it's a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. The podcast is hosted by Mila Atmos, and each week on Thursdays, she shares her in-depth conversations with changemakers. Their 16th season out now is all about the social contract, its history, and investigating what it means for society today. If you're looking for more ways to get involved, this is definitely the podcast for you. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, Ravi, one of the biggest issues in the world and one of the biggest things about being a member of the political left is that we believe in climate change and we care about it. And yet you and I have really not, for the most part, done an episode and barely done any segments on it. Uh, So we're doing that today. We should kind of let listeners in on why we haven't yet. Yeah. And and stick with us, listeners, because if you're anything like me, anytime you come across an article or a podcast about climate change, at least I... I run away, not because I don't believe it, but particularly because I do believe it. And I often feel helpless in the face of just the enormity of the challenge and the amount of disinformation that uh, we face. And so what we're trying to do is give you hope, but also give you a grounding in the reality that we face. And I think you'll find this, you'll find this helpful. Yeah, no, I, I'm exactly the same way. It's like, oh, I know that's super important, but I, it's so hard to get my arms around it. So we decided that that's really not a good excuse. And that makes us kind of, you know, we're, we're contributing to that problem of helplessness. And so we're not going to do that. Uh, so for this episode, we're doing something a little different. We're having two conversations. Um, as you probably know, the climate conference COP26 wrapped up last Friday. So in this episode, we're going to talk to two people about that. Alexander Kaufman is a senior reporter at Huffington Post. Amy Westervelt is an award-winning investigative reporter and host of the podcast Drilled and Hot Take. So we're going to start with the first of those two conversations. Our producer, Grace, spoke with Alexander to give us some foundation on how to think about COP26. This is the biggest protest against climate change since COP26 began. Activists from around the world coming to the same place because of the same fear that planet Earth is in danger and politicians are failing to fix it. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for being on the show. We're really excited to have you. Now, I want to start off with just some of the basics. What exactly is COP26? COP26 is an acronym. It stands for the 26th Conference of the Parties, which goes into the even longer name of being, you know, a conference of the the parties to the United Nations climate change treaty from 1992 that essentially convened the world around acting on climate change. Uh, And this is the 26th year that the world has met together to negotiate something to deal with that problem. It is attended by world leaders from most countries on earth, many journalists, activists, and people in civil society. And to the chagrin of some of those uh, advocates, many of those advocates, I'm sure, uh, many lobbyists and representatives of the industries that both stand to benefit from climate action, like the renewable energy industry, and those that stand to lose from climate action, namely, you know, the fossil fuel industry. And when you think about what the objectives are of COP, and particularly this meeting, COP26, What would you say those objectives were? And are we, as the conference winds down, are we on track to meet those objectives? 
the objectives of this COP were to strengthen the national pledges that were made in 2015 as part of the Paris Agreement, which was the first global agreement to uh, include the United States and China, the world's two biggest emitters, in a pact to say that cutting carbon emissions is really important and we are going to do it. As part of that, the Paris Agreement had a mechanism in it that said, five years from now, uh, we need to all get back together and figure out how to make these pledges even stronger and more in line with keeping warming in a relatively safe range. And so that was really supposed to take place last year. It was postponed because of COVID. And the goal broadly was to strengthen those pledges and ideally to strengthen those pledges enough to arrest global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial averages. You know, we are right now, for context, at about 1.1 degrees Celsius above those pre-industrial averages. So, you know, the, the, the goal was for us to come together and come up with a plan to cut emissions rapidly enough to actually hit that 1.5 degree target. There is a draft agreement. That agreement will not be in line with 1.5 degrees Celsius. This agreement basically says, actually, next year, we have to come back with, with strengthened goals. And by 2023, so two years from now, we have to have a 1.5 degree plan. That, depending on how you look at it, could be progress in the sense that it has hastened the timeline for urgency. But, you know, if the best we can come out of that with is a plan to make a plan is is not not great. You know, and, and I think it's important to know, too, that the pledges that have been made so far and analysis by the nonprofit Climate Action Tracker has found would essentially keep us on, on a trajectory to warm past not just 1.5 degrees, not just 2 degrees Celsius, which was the more lax goal of the, the uh, Paris Agreement, but actually beyond 2.4 degrees Celsius. So we are, we are not only failing on, on, the, on the goal of keeping at 1.5, but we're also failing with the current, newer, more ambitious pledges this year to even hit the baseline goal of the Paris Agreement from six years ago. To drill in more specifically to the United States and our role in this, what was Biden communicating when he was at COP? And how is everyone who is there feeling about the U.S.'s participation or lack thereof, especially as the prior administration withdrew from the Paris Agreement, we've now re-entered it. What is the feeling on the ground about the role the U.S. is playing in this? You know, I mean, it's complex. You know, I think it's important to first understand about the U.S. that the U.S. is by far, by far the largest source of the cumulative carbon dioxide that is in the atmosphere. That's an important thing to recognize, especially when, you know, you hear from people that, well, actually the climate future is to be determined by China or by India. China is and has been since 2006 the number one annual emitter but they also have five times as many people and the per capita emissions are much, much lower. You know, the per capita emissions of each American are much, much higher, which is important context to understand that, you know, the United States this year with Biden obviously came back with a, a vengeance in, in, in a positive way, you know, uh, really brought out many figures from the administration, came there with many pledges you know, was able to broker some important side deals. The U.S. led on something called the Global Methane Pledge. You know, methane is a greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide, but it stays in the atmosphere for a shorter period of time. But during that shorter period, it is much, much more potent at trapping heat. And so, you know, the U.S. has helped to lead a coalition that's going to aim to significantly cut that down over the next decade. So those are positive signs. And I think that people are happy to see that now an earnest and well-intentioned effort does not necessarily change the carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. As Biden came in, 
pledging to do all of these things, his own party in Congress was struggling to enact any type of real climate policy to enshrine decarbonization into U.S. law. That was a problem. I think notably, too, I mean, the U.S. came there to announce a number of new programs that it was going to help fund and support. And I think one of the more interesting ones was that the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, announced a big new program that's going to be called the Earthshot program. And this is an effort to reduce the cost of a type of technology called direct air capture, which are basically like giant fans that suck CO2 that is already in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere, put it through a chemical process that makes it into a storable form and then injects it into the earth where it can be stored, where, you know, in some cases it turns into rock or it can be put into, you know, underground wells deep, deep in in the earth's crust. And this technology is quite nascent. Uh, It's controversial among some environmentalists who fear that its development is just an excuse to burn more fossil fuels. But we're also at a point now where to stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius, we not only have to cut emissions dramatically, we do have to remove a certain amount of them. And that is, you know, the, the funding for an effort like this is pretty crucial because the biggest obstacle to using a technology like this is that it's expensive and inefficient. And what the energy secretary promised to do is to lower the cost of this from about $2,000 per ton of CO2 that gets vacuumed out of the atmosphere today to a $100 or less, which would, have, would make it much more commercially viable by the end of this decade. That's a That leads me to a question I have about the overall goals of COP and if you feel like they're accurately placed. Because there does seem to be one angle that is reducing emissions and another angle that is reducing the harm of emissions. And it seems like maybe more developed countries or countries that have long relied on fossil fuels are more interested in the negation of the harmful effects of emissions, but less so in the like overall reduction strategy and actually having to change how these industries function. Do you feel that COP is being steered in one direction versus another or is trying to highlight one versus another? And if so, what is your perspective on that? It's complicated. You know, I mean, uh, generally speaking, are the rich countries that grew rich burning fossil fuels, um, are they reluctant to make radical changes to their energy systems? Yes. But I don't think it is that black and white or, or that, uh, that the world is bifurcated in that way necessarily. You know, the countries that are demanding the most help with dealing with the harm of emissions are actually many of the countries that are actively dealing with that harm, most of which are in the global south and are the countries that have contributed the least to the cumulative problem. You know, this is actually a big debate that began before the COP and has continued throughout, which is that those countries want more funding for adapting to climate change. And this is sort of, I think, what what you're getting at. And this is an age-old debate within climate politics of adaptation versus mitigation. You know, back in the early 2000s, you had Al Gore and many environmentalists claiming that funding adaptation, working on adaptation was a distraction from the hard work of mitigation uh, and all of our efforts should be put into mitigation. Now, you know, the effect of that was not, in fact, to create more momentum for mitigation. It simply delayed adaptation. And as a result, Today, we're spending billions and billions and billions more to do catch-up work on adaptation that could have began a long time ago. And that's a problem that is being borne out mostly by people in vulnerable communities and vulnerable countries, you know, both within the United States and, and the rich world and in the developing world. So the split over how that funding should work and what should be prioritized is not so... Uh, easily delineated along the the rich polluters and the the developing you know non polluters. In fact, in the lead up to this COP, India was one of the first to start saying that these rich countries need to not only provide their own net zero goals, which are obviously heavily centered on mitigation, but also need to provide net negative goals. Essentially, this mess, this 
CO2 mess in the atmosphere is one that you, North American countries and European countries created, and you need to clean it up. And it's not fair that we should have to stymie our efforts to lift our much larger populations out of poverty by rapidly turning off our coal or our gas plants or our oil use just because you used up all of the carbon that was in the the world's budget for, for doing these things. Now, you know, dealing with the warming problem isn't the only reason that it's valuable to stop using fossil fuels. But that is nevertheless, you know, a viewpoint that I, I think is, you know, worth considering and, and I think gaining currency. As we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you kind of an overall takeaway from COP. You wrote an article that said, what happens in Glasgow could set a course away from climate calamity or cement a disaster. So as we reach the final day of this conference, which way are you leaning? It's a good question. You know, I, I remain the eternal optimist if you set as a baseline complete disaster. You know, I, I have long bristled at the popularity of, you know, rhetoric that I see you know, on Twitter and in the climate press overall that compares the situation at hand to an apocalypse, to some kind of an Armageddon. It is never lost on me that the people who use those terms most are people living pretty comfortable lives in rich countries in the global north. You know, it it has always struck me as, as quite privileged, you know, a, a type of privileged nihilism and one that I don't share. I mean, I think that the overall understanding across the world is of what is happening is greater than it ever has been. The organization that I see across the world demanding certain things and demanding solutions to things is, is greater than it has been before. And the number of people, I think, coming to the table with earnest differences of opinion that I think are helpful, you know, not talking about differences of opinion here about whether or not climate change is happening, but the best ways to address it, I I think that that is taking place and, and that that is a constructive sort of thing. And so I am hopeful in the sense that there is a greater recognition from this COP of what needs to be done. And there is a greater mobilization of people on many fronts to deliver on different types of policies to actually make a difference on these things in the years to come. Cynicism is not a constructive way to view a problem of this scale and magnitude. And so I'm choosing to be optimistic about what can come out in the next two years. That's really a lovely recommendation. And I uh, just a out of curiosity, do you have people in your life that don't maybe prioritize the climate crisis in the way that you feel it should be or choose to just disengage with it because it's icky? And if so, how do you try to talk to those people? Oh, many people do. I mean, I think that's the norm to do. I try to be generous and charitable. I try to understand, I help people to understand that it isn't your mission to solve every single thing in the world. You know, I try to at least guide people to put their faith in the right people to deal with with this problem. Uh, I try to encourage people to be open-minded about the ways to deal with climate change to to, to the, the healthiest extent. If they want to engage in these things, to read as much as they possibly can of things that are well-cited and scientifically literate and to at least be able to engage in what is an important debate to have in an informed way and to know the difference between, you know, uh, some type of industry propaganda meant to paralyze discussion uh, and something that is actually presenting differing viewpoints about the way to deal with something as complex as this. Wonderful. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for coming on Majority 54. Thanks for having me. Ravi, I just got back uh, from a trip. We kicked off our capital campaign to build a a Veterans Community Project campus in in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is great. You know, it was a lovely hotel and and they, they had many lovely things, but one of them was not my mattress. 
I am most excited, obviously, to see my family uh, when I come back. But in second place is sleeping on my mattress. Yeah, Helix mattress. I would be impressed if they had your mattress. And one of the reasons why is because Helix Sleep doesn't just give everybody the same mattress. In two minutes, you can complete a quiz and it will match you to your body type and sleep preference and give you the perfect mattress for you. And I took the Helix Sleep quiz as did you, Jason. We were both matched with the Midnight Lux mattress because we like medium firm mattresses and we sleep on our sides. So you just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. Babbel is the number one selling language learning app. Like, think of how many language learning apps there are. Like, it's number one. Yeah, what I love about Babbel is that they pull together multiple modes of learning. So you could listen to a conversation and answer questions about it. You get drilled on vocabulary. What I really like is that it's super practical. So it will pull together different categories and give you a real life situation to react to. And you could choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, they have this speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. And there's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54, Babbel, language for life. Nearly 200 nations have finally reached a COP26 climate agreement in Glasgow, Scotland. It comes after marathon talks amid intense negotiations after the summit ended. Yeah, so intense that the talks went into overtime as deep divisions remained. Applause, but no real joy. The end result, an intensely negotiated agreement that, at best, achieves incremental progress and ultimately falls short for everyone. But at a climate conference, that counts as a win. And now for more of a critique on the role of the fossil fuel industry at COP and how we should be talking about this with our friends and family, here's Amy Westervelt, an award-winning investigative reporter and host of the podcast Drilled and Hot Take. Amy, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, the big discussion over the past few weeks has been this COP summit What's the history of it? And you know, put it in context of these international gatherings to address climate change. I like to start this history in 1972 with the, the Stockholm Declaration. So there, this was sort of the original international meeting of uh, leaders to talk about environmental problems. So at this point, they weren't really talking about climate change, but they were sort of recognizing that environmental problems don't really know borders, that... If leaders around the world were going to kind of get on top of real basic things like clean air and clean water, that they would have to have some kind of coalition of of people working together. And so you have this document coming out of this summit in Stockholm in 1972 that is very sort of direct about this and in which business is not like a stakeholder at the table or a partner in this. They are really sort of the target of what governments need to get on top of. Um, And that, of course, didn't go over so great with with very many corporations. So that really sets off this, this push to try to get the international community to embrace the idea that the only effective solution to any environmental problem is one that includes corporate interests at the table. But the reason I like to start with Stockholm is that you see this very clear shift in the way that the global community is going to address any kind of environmental issue. And I, you know, I really think that that including fossil fuel interests from really the beginning of this process was a huge misstep. There's no evidence that fossil fuel companies will ever voluntarily do what's actually necessary 
on climate. <laughs> um, we have a lot of evidence that they won't and none that they will. So I, I don't know why that continues to be a thing. Um, I still hear people today saying, you know, well, don't you want to include these companies and shouldn't we bring them into the fold and they have all this expertise in energy and all of those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, sure, there are specific individuals whose expertise might be useful. But in terms of letting these companies have a seat at the table, they've had a seat for 30 years and they've basically flipped the table over in our faces and stormed out. So, you know, I think that is a, a critical flaw in the COP system and it's still there today. I mean, at this most recent one in Glasgow, the fossil fuel industry had more delegates than any one country. How are you going to get a solution that way? I, I would like to see them really crack down on, on not, I don't think they should allow fossil fuel representatives at these conferences. I really don't. I don't think that they should um, allow voluntary commitments. I think if they really want to be serious about um, bringing global leader leaders together to create real solutions, that those solutions need to be real commitments and they need to be held to them. You know? I think I guess the so, question yeah. is like what is what does it mean to be binding? You know, like there's I can't remember who made this joke, but that there's no international law, there's only international suggestions. You know, like how does <laughs> how do you make yeah how do you make a country like the US because you've talked about Kyoto Protocol. You know, the US yeah. never mind like bilateral agreements we make like the Iran nuclear deal or with Cuba or whatever like our country is so unreliable politically domestically that I don't know yeah. how anybody takes seriously any international commitments we make given how insane our our politics are <laughs> yeah yeah uh i think i mean to me that the if if it is hmm i guess like the the main way that it could be enforceable is really by various courts. So if the U.S. were to sign on to a binding global treaty, maybe a U.S. company could be taken to court in The Hague, for example. Um, right. <laughs> you know, because this is our, our, our audience, our people who've got people in their lives that are other, you know, have different political beliefs. And so I think what they're dealing with or, is- or may, or may like work in coal. Or my work in coal. Every, I think everybody imagines, you know, like a President DeSantis or whatever would run on pulling out of the whatever and and would do it regardless of the consequences, uh, just because it was pushed by Biden and because it acknowledges climate change. And this is the thing that like, makes people's brains turn off when we talk about climate change is that they feel so hopeless about their ability to change anything other than their own personal consumption habits. And so as somebody who lives this, what do you say to those people who are just like, you know what, I see a climate change article, I skip it because it just makes me depressed. When I hear about a, a international summit like this, it just feels so far away from me that even though it's talking about things that are important, I just feel so hopeless either about people's ability to do anything or their ability to stick to those agreements or for it to even touch my life in any meaningful way. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that actually I see some hope at like both ends of the spectrum where it's like um, really, really super hyper local solutions and then international solutions that would enable some kind of like international litigation. So like, for example, a Dutch court last year um, told Shell that they have to, you know, reduce their actual absolute emissions, including the emissions generated by the use of their product, 45 percent by 2030. They're fighting that, but, you know, we'll see if they win. And even though they're fighting it, it's already made them be much more aggressive on their their climate goals, uh, like way more than any other company. They're still not doing necessarily enough, but they're doing way more than they were before and they're doing way more than any other company. So I do think that at the international level, litigation is actually having an impact. And at the very super hyper local community level, I think like I see a lot of people from all sides of the political spectrum being sort of activated activated by what they see in their own community. So, for example, I did a story a few years ago where I followed this group of crab fishermen on the West Coast, and maybe like 70% of them 
don't believe, you know, in climate change, don't think humans are contributing to it, think it's a natural thing that's been occurring forever, are extremely right wing politically and have signed on to a lawsuit against the oil companies over their role in delaying climate action. How does that happen? <laughs> you know, they they saw like their industry being impacted by warming waters. They've been shut down the last like three out of five years for their entire fishing season because there's a weird toxin that gets into crabs um, in when they eat a particular algae that only grows in warm water. It's a whole thing, but it's it's all driven by warming oceans. And they've been really rocked by this. Like entire communities have been decimated by this problem. And as they started looking into it, they were shown documentation of oil companies taking out patents for things like, you know, offshore platforms that would work in rising seas or um, or like oil tankers that could navigate a melting Arctic. And so what they came to was, well, it really doesn't matter what's causing it. Like I can still I can still keep my like political identity and I can still say that climate change is a thing that's always happened and I can hold fossil fuel companies accountable for the fact that they knew that this was coming no matter what caused it. They prepared their business for it and they told me not to worry about it. And that's not fair. Um, so I do think that like you're seeing a lot of communities really look at the impact that this industry is having on them directly and finding, you know, sort of unexpected ways to deal with it. And another good example is Grant Township in Pennsylvania, which has invoked home rule and they've written rights of nature into their charter and are using that to try to keep fracking waste out of their community. So and that one, that one's a great one because everything about that appeals a lot to libertarians because it's like local control. The community is going to decide. These are our resources. You know, the state can't tell us what to do. All of that. But it's also a climate solution because they have, again, like these are not people that, you know, have been raging climate activists their whole life. They just don't want radioactive waste next to their school. You know, <laughs> which like who would? So um, so you do, I think, see this at the community level, little things starting to bubble up. There's like people on the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana who've effectively shut down petrochemical facilities. Same thing. Like they're, you know, it's like a retired teacher or, you know, a, a mechanic who just realized that something in their neighborhood was making their kids sick, you know, um, and that they weren't benefiting in any way from it. So I do think that, like, you're starting to see some of that community work. And that stuff I f gives me a little bit of hope for the future, too, because I think that community is the way that we're going to survive the impacts of climate change, too. So we need those, like, close ties with our neighbors, and we need that community work to really um, not just come up with solutions, but also just to keep going. Jason, I've been rewatching The Sopranos. And one thing I realized is it's costly for some people to go to therapists. I mean, Tony Soprano almost lost his life because he was uh, targeted outside of his therapist's office. So we don't want that to happen to our listeners. Ravi, that is a very compelling argument for BetterHelp. Uh, I will give you another, which is today we're talking about climate change. And whether you're talking about just the overwhelming feelings that you get about, you know, the dangers of climate change or just the fact that the weather is changing and maybe that is getting in your brain like it is for me, BetterHelp is probably a good option for you. It's not a crisis line. It's not even self-help. It's a professional private counseling service that's affordable and convenient. And, you know, finding the right therapist for you can sometimes take a couple tries. So if you need to switch counselors, BetterHelp will make it free and easy to do that. And I'm so excited that they're sponsoring the show. And as a benefit to you, they're offering 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com slash M54. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54 and get 10% off your first month. Jason, I am heading to Costa Rica on Friday. I just made a packing list. One guess as to what is number one on that list. 
Well, it, it has to be AG1. If it's not, I would I would counsel you. Otherwise, I would worry about what's going on with my friend. Yes, Jason. You know, of course, it's uh, AG1 by Athletic Greens. And our show is brought to you by Athletic Greens. AG1 is a lifestyle-friendly product that you could use whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free. And it contains less than one gram of added sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. So like, what's your what's your routine now at this point when you do two? It's like, when does the second one come in? Is it, is it like post-workout? Is it pre-workout? I take Athletic Greens first thing in the morning instead of coffee now because I've been convinced that you don't want coffee first thing in the morning because it dehydrates you. And then in the middle of the day, because I'm a nutcase who's intermittent fasting, I take it in the middle of the day because it's a little pick-me-up. Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash majority today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You know, that dovetails into something that you've talked about a lot, uh, and I think this is a, a term that you coined, right? Information pollution? Yes. It's a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us about that and about like what role it plays at conferences like COP. Yes. So this is it's a long-standing problem. This is actually an industry that the U.S. created too, um, and that is the PR industry. <laughs> so, or by its proper name, the propaganda industry. They, you know, rebranded in the twenties because the Germans gave propaganda a bad name. So, um, <laughs> this is. I mean, it's really it's it's a whole kind of disinformation system that was created at a time in you know kind of at the dawn of the 20th century, when companies were facing a lot of challenges from many directions. So you had journalists that were criticizing them. You had labor unions starting up and, and demanding better wages and working conditions. You had the government passing the very first regulations on business. And you had the vote extending to people who were not landowning white men. So all of a sudden, you know, the Rockefellers and the, and their ilk were dealing with a public that didn't necessarily agree with them, you know, that didn't want the same things that they did. And they needed a way to, you know, sort of mold democracy in a way that would benefit them. And that way was was PR or like what I what I call information pollution. It was like, OK, how do we, you know, structure the narratives around these issues so that people feel like we're all on the like they're on our team and you know we'll vote for the things that we want them to vote for um and it's very insidious i mean at this point i feel like everyone does this now everyone sends out press releases a large number of the stories that you see in any newspaper began with a publicist pitching a journalist on this thing. Um, it's not like journalists going out and finding stories or being in a community and talking to people and whatever. Sometimes it is. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that never happens, but a lot of it's generated by that. So, I mean, and, you know, good and bad, like even your your town like your town council or mayor's office has a, a press person who's in charge of trying to shape the narrative around this person and what they're doing or around whatever policies they're passing in your town. So I think just sort of being aware of that and, and thinking about like, OK, like, you know, who's pushing this story and to what end um, is is helpful for people. Not not that I like I really I try to be careful when I talk about this because I don't want people to to kind of double down on, oh, everything is rigged and I'm just going to believe the one guy I like on YouTube, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's why I only listen to Tucker Carlson. That's right. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like I don't I don't I don't want people to do that. I just think it's helpful to understand that, like, look, corporations spend a lot of money trying to shape what you think about various issues and they outspend everybody else by like 10 to 1. So if there's a story about an industry, it's it's a good it's good practice to just sort of try to think critically about where that information is coming from, what filter it's coming through and like, you know, what agenda the person might have. Well, specifically in the climate space, I think it's it's if you think about motive, 
I think we tend to think of it very linear, right? Like we tend to think about motive as, oh, how do they directly stand to make money off of convincing me to buy X? But that's not what this is. What this is, is, is it's, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like when I was a kid and we were, we were talking about the ozone layer, you remember that, you know, there, there was like really no debate about it. You know what I mean? There, there was no debate about whether or not something needed to be done about aerosol cans and that kind of thing. Um, and I feel like there was a moment there. Um, I'm sure it had already started, but you know, it where we were also starting to get on a, a pretty, I don't want to say unanimous, but but close to a public consensus to where it was becoming conventional wisdom that you know we didn't call it climate change yet, but we called it global warming, and it was it was entering popular culture in a way that was just accepted as a fact that needed to be dealt with, and it's not that um, fossil fuel companies went out and convinced us necessarily in large numbers that it's not real, but they figured out they didn't have to, right? All they had to all they had to do was make us go. And I've, I've heard people say this about climate and other things, which is, I've just heard so much conflicting stuff, like, how do you know what's true? So really, all they had to do was battle us to a draw to get people to not take action. Yeah. One of the the better known um, kind of operatives in the, the disinformation space is a guy named Rick Berman, and his thing is a tie is a win. He says right. this all the time that like he's like, you don't have to convince people to like you. You just have to make them confused enough that they won't act, mm-hmm. that they won't change anything and that they won't feel compelled to like vote for major changes. And that is exactly what has been done on climate. But I also think it, it's important to understand that fossil fuel companies in particular were heavily invested in PR from jump, I mean, for a really long time, and that for decades before we even got to climate change, they were laying this framework of, you know, this is how we're allowed to think about environmental issues. This is how we weigh environmental issues versus economic issues. Those two things are always in conflict. You know, never mind that, mm-hmm. of course, like a lot of businesses rely on clean water, too. You right, know? Right. Well, or that there's a whole industry to be to be made lots of money off of on renewables if if you right. if you go that direction. But right. you're not going to go that direction if you're already sitting pretty in the other direction. That's the thing, because I started looking. The reason I started looking into the disinformation stuff was that I just felt like climate denial was such a dumb strategy. I was like, this is not like a genius move. You know, like all (laughs) they're saying is like, -uh. um, how did this work so well? You know, and so I started looking into it and I was like, oh, well, yeah, they've really like shaped our ideas about the economy and energy. And also they've done so much work to tie American identity to fossil fuels in particular, that by the time this issue sort of appeared on the horizon, we were already going to be limited in how we understood the problem and what kinds of solutions we would even entertain. So it's sort of like, whoa, all this groundwork was laid <laughs> to, to like to narrow this way before we even get to climate change. And, and then I don't know. When you see that, you're kind of like, oh, the response was so predictable because, of course. They shape, they shape the question. Right. You shape the yeah. question, you can shape the answer. You know, my biggest takeaway from this is like like with our show, since it's aimed at, at helping people, you know, convince their conservative friends and relatives, one of the questions we get more than anything else is some version of why are the Republicans so much better at X argument or Y argument than us? And I think, you know, the this the saying you know a tie is a win is so revealing because yeah. if you think about the dynamics of american politics one side is conservative the other side is progressive what what is you know inherent to conservatism which in this case is doing nothing about climate uh it's do nothing right, right don't change inertia. anything that's yeah, so much more appealing and easy to sell yeah <laughs> yeah don't don't change anything right that's li- yeah. literal that's the meaning of conservative and progressive is change things and so why are they more effective at so many things? The answer is because for them, a tie is a win. And for us, it's not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that is, I mean, that's the big, the like the really big problem, I think, with doing anything on climate is that we're at a tie right now. And I personally think I actually am working on something about this that I think actually that asking people to quote unquote believe science is too high of a bar. 
Um, because like to believe science, you have to understand the science in the first place and like how many people do. And what I saw, especially in this example of the the crab fishing community, was like, that's actually unnecessary. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't need you to agree on, you know, what's causing it. If you can see that it is happening and that fossil fuel companies are stopping the rest of us from being able to adapt and survive it while they themselves have been adapting for 30 years, that's a pretty compelling argument. And it allows people in without having to change any of their ideology. Because I'm like, if the bar is you have to change your tribal identity, that we're never going to do it. You know, no. Well, it's, the, it's the difference between change your tribal identity, believe science, and protect your own tribe, right? Because right. Like, like I can remember, you know, a few years ago when I was running for things and I would get asked about like Obama's power plan, which now seems like so mild so compared quaint. to what we need, yeah. right? But <laughs> yeah. it was a huge issue for me in Missouri. Yeah. And, you know, my answer was, was not belief science. My answer was, look, at the time, this was really relevant. I, I said, look, the main source of revenue for ISIS is oil. So maybe we should stop giving money to the people who are trying to kill us. Yeah. And it's it's like, how do you reframe it in a way that's like protect your people? Right. Or your crabs. Right. Exactly. Which like it comes back to the community thing, too. It's like the thing that gets people to act across the political spectrum is when they see it show up in their community. So you have to find the ways that like, you know, that activate that. When I I spoke with this one woman um, who was from a crab fishing family and, and she was like, yeah, when I saw those documents, it really was a game changer for me because, you know, in my like Pollyanna worldview, I just, I, I thought that we were all working from the same set of facts and that we were operating on a level playing field and and they just weren't and that's not fair you know and i'm like god that's such a like universal thing that people that people get is like fairness and that you know someone had this information and they used it to benefit themselves and they kept it from me that's not fair no yeah it's it it would make you mad so uh looking ahead just Put a couple things on our radar. Like, what comes next? What are the big questions you're asking beyond this? You know, what we've already established in terms of, you know, binding commitments and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I I always try to remind people of is that we're not limited to only the solutions that the international or national political system will give us. You know, like there are actually ways that you can work within your community to um, to push for either policies or just actually social change within your community. You know, I think that's important for people to remember. And we're seeing it all over the place and in a really bipartisan way, you know, where people are are just sort of looking around their own towns and saying, I don't I don't like how the industry is operating here, you know, Um, and that actually like does really have an impact. I, I was just talking to someone the other day in Toledo, Ohio, where they passed a bill of rights for Lake Erie a few years back. And, you know, they've been in and out of court over it. And there's been a push by these politicians to um, preempt any further actions like that by writing in, you know, they smuggled in a line into a budget bill that said no one can ever bring a, you know, a ballot measure like this again. And and I was talking to her and I kind of, you know, when she when she said, yeah, they that worked, you know, that's in the law now. I kind of went, oh, man. So like and she was like, that doesn't mean we stop just because someone passes an unfair law. Like if if our reaction every time an unfair law was passed was to stop, then we wouldn't have you know, women wouldn't have the right to vote. Uh, Lots of other things wouldn't exist, you know. So I think it's important to kind of, I don't know, look backwards really for our for our path forwards and see, okay, like there are lots of of social movements that have taken a while and that have, you know, continued to fight even when they feel like they're losing. You know, Um, I think that's important. I also do think that there are there are now something like 200 different climate lawsuits in courts around the world. 
And I do think that oil companies are going to start to get pretty tired of that. Um, and and it might just make them a little more willing to to agree to to real change. Those are the two things that are sort of giving me some optimism right now, That because those are things that can happen and continue to happen no matter what is happening at the national level in the U.S. and no matter what's happening at the international level with these um, summits. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and thanks for the work that you do. Go and be hopeful. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good tagline. I like it. So, Ravi, I, I really enjoyed uh, both of those conversations because I now feel... Uh, I want to say more hopeful, but I, what I really think it is, is I think I feel a greater sense of, of agency. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's so helpful to have people who've been sifting through all of this help us just make heads or tails of what we can control and what we can't control and where we can place place that hope. One thing, this is like a random thing. What I couldn't stop thinking about when, when uh, Amy was talking about, you know, the fossil fuel industry investing in technology to be able to like navigate uh you know um, glaciers that are melting and to and to deal with rising seas one of my favorite movies is is the rainmaker and uh, is one of my favorite books it's a john grisham book turned into a movie and there's a pivotal scene in that movie where the insurance company that they're suing because they refuse to cover bone marrow transplants for a leukemia patient is revealed to have had an internal memo deciding to invest in bone marrow transplants because they are such good therapies. Uh, and it's like, that to me is like at the heart of what's so obvious about climate and the fossil fuel industry right now is they're like, no, 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 climate change has nothing to do with us. We're just, and it's not coming soon. We're just investing in all sorts of technologies to make sure we can still make money when it does. Great movie. Underrated Danny DeVito performance. Oh, like fantastic Danny DeVito performance such a good movie. All right. Uh, this leads us directly into, into our grab and or, which Amy, uh, you know, alluded to what you can do locally. So we would encourage you to figure out what is going on in your community. I mean, are there, are there possible ordinances that your city council is considering? Is your, is your, your county commissioners, are they thinking about putting, you know, buses on, uh, you know, emission free, like making them emission free? What is it that's going on? Or is it not legislative? Is it a community group, uh, that's trying to do something? Um, whatever it is, get involved with it and then highlight it to us, like tweet it at us, put it on Instagram, tag us so that we can amplify it so that other people from your community can see it as well. Teaser for next week, as we mentioned before, uh, we are going to help prepare you for Thanksgiving dinner where you're going to encounter all sorts of opinions that you probably won't agree with and will want to politely push back on. So we're doing like a live uh, mailbag episode where what it really is, is like we are actually going to speak with a few listeners who need some coaching about going into one of these difficult Thanksgiving dinners. And then you can listen to that. And hopefully, I, I believe, I'm confident, actually, you will get takeaways uh, from it that, that you can use at your Thanksgiving dinner. So it should be an interesting one. Really looking forward to doing that. All right. As usual, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.